Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an M.A. from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a Ph.D. from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima, On Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. When we talk then about the liturgy, essentially begins when we our movement towards church on a Sunday morning, and we're preparing ourselves and we vest ourselves and with the, the clothes and the attitude and the disposition to fully participate as those little Christ, those Christians. In that movement, there is a point where we even offer up the sacrifice. We place on the altar our sacrifices. Torres would say all the thousand pinpricks. Yes. All of those kind of things. That's is through with and in him. If we had that disposition of what is actually happening in that movement when we go on a Sunday, it brings to value, maybe for us, a realization of the value of all of those practices, all those acts of love. Yes. And if we had a positive understanding of sacrifice, the modern world doesn't. It thinks of sacrifice as losing, giving up, hurting. Nobody says, oh, what could I sacrifice today? Mm-hmm. Here comes Lent, another opportunity for sacrifice. And therefore, we want our sacrifice to be as small as possible. But the ancient world, both the pagan and Hebrew, and the medieval world, all of Christendom, has understood sacrifice in this very positive sense. It's not giving up, it is giving to. It's turning over. You sacrifice yourself in marriage. Yeah, well, there's not much burden in that. What more delight could there be than giving myself to the other? So why else did Scripture choose marriage as a sacramental symbol of Christ's relationship to the church. So the sacrifice we give isn't a uh, begrudging. We shuffle on into church and we put $5 and here's, I should really try harder and here I'm sacrificing my bad temper. The sacrifice is a sacrifice of love, these good gifts that you've just named. The external priesthood, to quote the Council of Trent, has the power, power just means an ability to act, has the power to make this consecration. But the interior priesthood, internal priesthood, also has a power to make sacrifice. And in Mediator Dei, Pius Twelfth is very clear about that. First, let's make sure we don't confuse to think that the laity have the ordained priestly duties. Then, let's remember that the laity have an interior priestly duty to do there in the pew. Once I was in a setting, maybe this gets into left-right too much, but I'll tell the story anyway. I was in a setting in which the uh, liturgy 
was halfway through. They'd been to the Liturgy of the Word. The uh, offertory had been brought forward. And then the priest, thinking that he was going to be generous and welcoming, said, and now would you all come forward and make a circle around the altar? And I felt patronized. Did you think I haven't been doing my liturgy yet? Do you think you're going to make me feel better by letting me play a little kindergarten version of your liturgy? Mm -hmm. I have a lay liturgy to do in the pew where I am in the nave. You do your liturgy in the sanctuary. I'll do my liturgy in the nave and we will cooperate the liturgy as I tried to pun earlier. I don't cooperate with him. He and I cooperate the liturgy. So for him to invite me up into what is his space seemed like a condescending act to me. It didn't give me my a dignity as a baptized priest, royal priesthood, there in the nave, in the central part of the church, where is my place to be? I've, um, I've tried to say this as delicately as I can, but there have been those moments where, as that faithful entering into this whole moment and trying to do the best I can, to be open to passing that on, there are things that will happen sometimes where, you know, for example, there's inappropriately so in the rite, in the, the Eucharistic celebration, uh, the elect are brought forward. And there is a prayer that the priest, your ordained priest, on behalf of the church, prays for and with them in this moment of the scrutinies. I'll, I'll just be real clear of that. And and a healing from the woundedness that they're experiencing. And the priest will lay his hands on behalf of the church on those elect. And then he invites everyone else to come up and lay their hands on the elect. And it's that moment, is my prayer not enough? You, this action you're asking me, which the church has not called me to do, but you want to include me and make them all feel like they're a part of something. Well, I was a part of something. Now you've just, you've negated and minimized the prayer you've asked me to pray for them and to join in with. I don't understand that. What is that? What is that about? You know, and then I try not to get too disgruntled and irritated and communicate that irritation to everybody around me. <laughs> so it's, you know, because then I become a part of the problem. But do you know what I'm trying to say? There's this need yeah. to make everybody feel like a priest, and I already am by my by my baptism. If I invited you to my home for a dinner party, and when you came in, you found that I had set up a row of folding chairs, and I give you a little missalette so that you can sit in the folding chair and watch four of us do a dinner party, mm -hmm. I imagine you'd find that kind of tedious. I imagine that your teenage son or daughter would ask, uh, I don't get anything out of this. Why do I have to come? I don't come to watch a liturgy. Mm -hmm. I come to be a liturgist, to do liturgy, to do my activity. I think the same thing applies in all of these other uh, areas that we've been pushing into the uh, monastic asceticism and the uh, ecstatic mysticism. I don't keep a real diary because my real life is kind of boring, but sometimes I have thoughts that I think are interesting, and so I write them down. And I have this entry from my uh, theology diary. I'm dead, you're dead, the monk is dead. All the little fishes in the baptismal font who are caught by Christ are dead. 
He has taken one rusty nail out of his hand and bent it into a fish hook to catch us. But the secular lay person, he throws back. The monastic lay person is dead and out of the world, but the secular laos is thrown back from the font to do a few more jobs. Justice, make peace, make babies, make witness in church, be faithful in marriage, sit on a throne at Care Paravel. I must be as dead to myself when running my kid around or being meek with Elizabeth as any Francis or Benedict. It all comes from this baptism. And every liturgy is a celebration of that baptism by the totus Christus, Christ and his members, and his members are divided into external priesthood and internal priesthood. You have an understanding of what that, that engagement through the sacrament of baptism, you're aware of who you are and what that calling is. I think we need a baptismal apologetic once again so that those few people like me understand what we're being called, invited to. We can become aware of what's happening. I think most people, they can't articulate it. Mm -hmm. There's something deep down inside. They just know it, but they get confused. I apply a statement to Mrs. Murphy that comes from a philosopher named Polanyi who writes, we know more than we can say. Mrs. Murphy knows more than she can say. She's a theologian, even if she uh, doesn't have the vocabulary words that I'm going to be giving a test on next Friday, but she knows more than she can say. But it may help to learn the words to be able to say it. And so we know this baptismal identity. We sense the call if, of course, if we're serious about our conversion, if the faith is there, that's a whole other path to go down. But let's assume somebody is uh, trying to take their identity and baptism seriously. Maybe it would help to have what you called an apologetic. And while you were describing that, the word that came to my mind was mystagogy. That's what mystagogy is. I guess not just for the RCA person two times. Your development as a Christian, your education as a Christian, your formation as a Christian is a lifelong mystagogy. In my dissertation thesis, I was looking around for a definition of theology, and I thought this would be a good one. Theology asks, what happened? As the bush burned but never was consumed, Moses had to ask a theological question. What happened? When the angel said to Mary, you'll give birth to a son even though you're not married. What happened? As I go to a font and I see a little bit of water dropped with an invocation of a name, I ask, what happened? Now you can answer that in the thinnest possible way, uh, a little water got dropped and now he's a member of the church and we're going to collect dues from him as soon as he gets a job. But if you answered it in a thick way, what happened means new birth, set free from Satan, regeneration. This person was generated once biologically, but now they're regenerated spiritually. There's a uh, collection of about two dozen names for baptism that the church fathers used. I can't uh, bring it up quick enough, but that's their mystagogical answer to what happened. And then my thoughts about liturgical mysticism is, if liturgical theology asks what happened in liturgy, that's a theological question. Liturgical mysticism asks what happened to you in liturgy? And that's simply the same liturgical theology question, but being directed now to uh, individual lives. 
it's not only this corporate activity of the church, but the personal activity of an individual member of the church. So that for me is a connection between church and liturgical theology, big scale, and then liturgical mysticism, the uh, person, interior person. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I really truly believe that that's what the new evangelization is all about. And I almost don't, I almost don't like the term anymore because it's, this is my own not worthy of much opinion, but uh, it seems to have been co-opted or just almost abused to the point where it's all about mechanisms and mm-hmm. or proof texting and all these other things, as opposed to that, what I saw, what John Paul was saying, is that it's going to the baptized, helping them to know what happened. Do you realize who you are, Christian? And being just so soaked into and penetrated by this mystery. Well, what is that? That's that divination that you've talked about 
that sharing of the divine life. And what does that mean for you? How is that lived out? And how is that nurtured? That, I think, is the new evangelization. That's a great word to bring up. Evangelion means to give good news. In the root of that word, in the center of that word is angel, the messenger who brings something. The Evangelion might have been with the army 20 miles away, and he sees that the battle is won, and so the city is safe, and he runs 20 miles back to give the good news. Hey, hey! Well, that's the Evangelion. Uh, it's 20 centuries away, yet we don't know when the world's going to end, the year 4037. But uh, the breathless evangelists come running back to the world and say, Christ has conquered, Satan is bound hand and foot, Hades' gates are opened, death does not rule. This is a good thing for us to remember all the time. And that's the evangelization. Oh, are there corners in which, in my life, in which Satan still rules and I'm still dead? Are there corners of gangrene in my body? Yeah, I need that evangelion, that message, to be given to me steadily, regularly. And that's why one goes to church in order to hear the good news proclaimed by uh, people who are authorized witnesses, witness, martyr, martyria, authorized witnesses. And I'm thinking of all the liturgists there, both the uh, external and the internal. The community with whom I have fellowship evangelize me further. They convert me further, metanoia transform my mind um, in and out in and out inhale and exhale maybe this is a leap but you can insert a little music and then pretend like uh, we actually got to do it uh, by uh, <laughs> a logical sequence and not by hook or crook i was once trying to think about uh sacred and profane if my life as a christian is in the profane world uh, why do i need the sacred why do i go to the sacred and is the sacred abandoning the profane. You all know some people who are so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good. What's the uh, significance of the sacred? And then I had a thought that came from my old philosophy classes that had a thought from Aristotle. He said, if a thousand-mile-long monster washed up on shore, you wouldn't be able to tell whether that monster was ugly or not. Because one of the requirements there are three requirements, but one of the requirements for beauty is proportionality. And I can't see that whole monster. I can't take the whole monster in, so I can't tell if his nose is too big for his face or whatnot. And I had the thought, change it from a spatial image of miles long to a temporal image of centuries. I can't tell whether this life is beautiful because I can't see whole history. I can just see my 72 minutes. Well, I should give myself more than that. 84 years of it. All right, with a little book reading, I can see uh, 200 years of it or 2,000 years of it, but I just see this little snip of it. I can't see the whole creation from alpha to omega because I just see this little piece of it. So I can't tell whether life is beautiful or maybe Neither can I quite detect and apprehend if it's true. Truth, beauty, oh yeah, what's that last one? 
maybe I can't even see that life is good. And that's a sad suicidal state. If I can't look at the world and see its truth, beauty, and goodness, I might be inclined to give up on the world. Well, when I go into the sacred, it's not to enter a different world, it's to finally see this world from beginning to end, from alpha to omega. It's like the little uh, shoebox dioramas I used to make in grade school with the clouds made out of little uh, cotton balls in the top and a stick for the tree. Well, here is a place that shows me from Genesis to Revelation what God's mystery of salvation is, his sacramental uh, salvific plan. That's the way the Catechism defined liturgy. And I go into the sacred in order to have a vantage point on the profane. So then I do my liturgy in the profane world. Liturgy is doing the world the way it was meant to be done. But I can't do it the way it was meant to be done unless I knew what I was supposed to be doing. And unless I knew what God wanted me to be doing, and unless I knew what God intended for the world. So I have to spend some time with the blueprint drawer, with the architect, with the designer. I don't know how this uh, family should operate, or this marriage should operate, or this justice in society should operate, unless I spend some time with the source of love and the source of justice and the source of... So you go into the sacred in order to um, inhale so that you can uh, conduct your liturgical, sacramental, priestly... Oh, I could use sacerdotal. We'll um, pile up as many... Um, uh, words, similar sounding words, a sacerdotal, sacramental, ascetical, and mystical life that I live uh, my seven days in the world between the times I come into the sacred on the eighth day. Then I take a step up into heaven so that I can see heaven around me. The beauty of it all is that while we enter into the sacred realm, really, on a Sunday, or maybe we do it daily, but it also surrounds us completely. It's illuminated in a very real way in our, our life, in the day-to-day, in the world, and what we call the liturgical calendar. Every season has a moment. Every day has a purpose. You see it in the, the liturgy of the hours. Every hour has a, a prayer. There's always a movement, isn't there? There's always, you just have to be aware. You always hear, wake up, wake up, everyone. Be aware, wake up in that call. Sometimes I think about liturgical rhythm as punctuation marks. And there is a uh, once a year Easter exclamation point. Daily prayer is a series of commas or semicolons. Period is the most important point. I would give that to Sunday. But if I didn't have those organizational pauses, then my sentence would just run on like this and it would have no end and you couldn't tell when I was going to start or stop and my life would just expend itself and I would die with a sigh at the end. Mm -hmm. Liturgy enters my life by giving me an order or a structure, right pauses, a kind of formality. It gives me a grammar by which I can speak. So we're talking about a way of finding a connection. Oh, it's almost like another perichoresis. A connection place for 
the sacred in the profane, the profane in the sacred. I think untold mischief has been done by a, an equivocation, a two meanings of the word profane. Sometimes we use it to mean not of God, not holy. But its real meaning is set aside from the profane. And the world can be holy. The world is holy. There's holiness in the world. But that doesn't mean that there's no reason for setting aside certain sacred places. So if by sacred you meant yucky, uh, then... Sorry, if by profane you meant yucky, then I've got to leave the yucky profane world and go into the sacred world. And I know there are Christians that uh, tend to live that way. But on the other hand, it would seem to be a mistake not to need sacred moments, sacred places, sacred persons, sacred... Because this is stepping out of the ordinary into the extraordinary so that when I return, I can see what is ordinary. I'll be very careful not to give anything away, but I knew a priest this isn't a somebody second cousin told me this the priest himself told me this that in his seminary class the um, teacher had them lace on their tennis shoes and run around the interior nave of the church why to convince them that there was nothing special about this place mm. and we could bring a can of coke and our hot dog to a sunday morning liturgy well the right correction to that isn't to say, no, no, that's holy and your life in the world is not holy. It's holy in both places, but you need a sacred space in order to appreciate or understand or to be filled with that holiness. This I learned from a wonderful little book by Joseph Pieper on uh, the, the sacred and profane. But he's pointing out that um, profane does not mean the unholy part. Sacred and profane are divisions within the one holy God's world. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fackerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. Or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg.